the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We're spoiled here in the city of Pittsburgh in that we have known and loved Mr. Rogers for many, many decades. And and it seems fun and um, a little surprising, quite honestly, that Fred Rogers has um, exploded into sort of a a second life almost more than a decade after his passing. There's been a a recent documentary film about Fred Rogers, which was excellent. Uh, Tom Hanks, of course, uh, uh, famously celebrated here in the city of Pittsburgh. He's uh, starring as Fred Rogers in a film that will be released next year. And for the first time ever, there's a brand new biography of Fred Rogers called The Good Neighbor, The Life and Works of Fred Rogers by Maxwell King. Maxwell King is the CEO of the Pittsburgh Foundation. And after a career in journalism, including eight years as the editor of the Pittsburgh Inquirer, Maxwell King served as president of the Pittsburgh-based Heinz Endowment for nearly a decade. But uh, uh, Maxwell, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, John. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Max, um, after your time was over uh, with the uh, the Pittsburgh Foundation, you were sort of looking at post-retirement, wondering how you were going to use your time, and someone suggested you look at the, the Fred Rogers Foundation. Yeah, what, what happened was I was uh, finishing up uh, two jobs. I was chairman of the board of the National Council on Foundations. I was president of the Heinz Endowments. Both jobs were ending in May of 2008, and I was feeling almost a little panic-stricken about what would I do. I'm sure. What would I put my energies into? And Douglas Nowicki, who is the chancellor of St. Vincent College, uh, where the Fred Rogers Center for Early Learning and Children's Media is located, uh, I ran into him actually at a cocktail party at Teresa Hines' farm right outside Pittsburgh. And I was talking to him, and he said, well, why don't you come out and help us get the Rogers Center going? They had just completed the building, and they were in the market for someone who could help raise money. And I had been in the foundation world for a while and start programs. So um, I did do that. I did that for a couple of years. But in the course of doing it, I discovered there's no biography of Fred Rogers, and I went to – uh, to uh, Douglas Nowicki and Joanne Rogers, Fred's widow, and said, if we're going to raise money in the at the level that you're hoping and advance Fred's legacy, which is very important to do, we need a biography. Why has there never been a biography? And they explained to me that Fred was adamant that he didn't want a biography. And uh, so I said, well, with all due respect, Fred's gone. We've got this challenge. And we need it. I had a couple of meetings with Joanne. And finally, she said, okay, I agree. You're right. Why don't you do it? And uh, I'd been a journalist for many years, had written a lot of um, 
news articles, editorials, magazine articles, but I'd never written a book like this. It's a big difference. So I was kind of naive about what it would take. (laughs) But I said yes, and I'm so glad I did because – well, I'm glad that I got the book done because I think it's helpful in advancing Fred's legacy. But I'm really glad that I spent seven years with – Fred was gone. He was deceased, but – in doing the research, I felt as if I spent f- seven years with Fred Rogers. Nice. And it was uh, of great benefit. That's good to company me. to be in, isn't it? Yes, absolutely was. Wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, uh, as uh, the uh, part of the introduction, we think we know Fred Rogers here in the city because, of course, this is his hometown and WQED on Fifth Avenue, the uh, home studios. We've seen Fred. I mean, I would see Fred walking in Squirrel Hill on Forbes and Murray, right. and everyone felt a, a connection to that. Yeah. But when you deep dive into someone's life, you uncover really wonderful, fascinating stories about the man. And quite honestly, what I was most excited about was, and I think this is the question that everybody wants to know about any public figure, is that person the same in private life as he appears on the public stage? And I think the answer that you, the, the, the question that you answer so well in The Good Neighbor is that Fred was, yes, the same person. Very much the same person. I think what made Fred successful in television, particularly children's television, was that he was so genuine. He was authentic. He was real. And so when you met him, and I met him only twice uh, in person, excuse me, but when you met him and, uh, and talked to him, he was very much the same as he was on television. But what you might miss, and I did miss until I researched his life, was he he was not the very simple, sweet, avuncular figure that he appeared to be. He was a very complex and very deep philosophical person who thought a lot about life, how it should be lived. Um, and he, you know, he was a Presbyterian minister. He was raised in the Presbyterian Church, and he was. Um, deeply Christian throughout his life, but he was interested in other religions, other philosophies. He was interested in learning about philosophies and about life going all the way back to Confucius and Lao Tzu. And so it was the depth of the man that I don't think everybody really knew about. People who had uh, seen him on television and then met him, seen him for a brief period of time, weren't exposed to, to the tremendous... Uh, depth of of him and, and his character. You know, it's a, a really, really strong character. Well, I think that's true. That's a great point. That when you bring up when someone is a master of their craft, and you see, you know, someone Herbie Hancock playing the guitar or whomever, yeah. right, well, that looks so easy. But of course, the skill set behind that, all those years of creation, and of course. Fred's education, uh, the training uh, in psychology and in child psychology, all that infused that conversation and how he presented himself to children. Yeah, I think he made it look very simple on television. And and you could watch uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which I did a little bit with my children, but then, of course, watched many of those shows later in researching the book. And you could think how simple it seemed. It was not simple. And it was, it was, first of all, it was, it was very, uh, thoughtful television. He, he dug into all of the most pressing issues of life and did it for little children. Divorce, death, uh, violence. He explored all these things in very sophisticated television for little children. 
But it was also made more complicated by the fact that he had very strong, serious goals to be an educator, not just to be a television figure entertaining children, but for it to have very strong educational value. And so that made all of the script writing, all of the production that much more complex. I think what's fascinating about Fred in so many different areas is that, you know, Fred really sort of came into into blossom late 50s, 60s here in western Pennsylvania. And you think about the city at that time, it was anything but kind and gentle. I mean, it was a steel workers town. It was a rough and tumble town. And, and so, Fred, that personality of kind and gentle was out of the norm from the get-go, but still, the people who engaged Fred and were able to hire Fred and let him do his work, they saw that spark in him and allowed that to flourish. Well, you're right that it was a rough-and-tumble town, and it's still a town that has plenty of edge to it, sure. and, and it's uh, there's uh, kind of a strong, uh, working-class, uh, tough aspect to it. But I do think Fred's very much a product of Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania and his genuine, very authentic, caring character really does reflect the community very much. I, the community, which, you know, I, I think I've lived and worked now in eight different American cities. Wow. And I, I worked for a while in Pittsburgh. My wife and I left and then we came back in part because we, we missed it. But it has a very distinctive character. Uh, it's not pretentious. It's it's very direct and honest and truthful. Yes, and very authentic, like Fred. And it's very caring, also. So I think in that way, Fred reflects his community, and the community reflects Fred. Hey, if you just joined us, Maxwell King is with us. He's the author of a brand new biography of Fred Rogers called "The Good Neighbor: The Life and Works of Fred Rogers." So uh, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, I'm really interested in Fred Rogers as the child because it was this. This life of um, almost genteel uh, upbringing, where he was the the richest kid in, um, in in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, which is sort of indicative of a Western Pennsylvania town. It was a, a town of industry, but there was Fred, born sort of um, gentle and all, almost fragile in a way. His mother protected him, and because of that protection and the wealth, he was able to engage in music and puppetry and a skill set that was unusual for the place and time. Very much so. And it's interesting that he came from a wealthy family in Latrobe. The, uh, his family uh, was involved in several in- industries in Latrobe, and they were good investors. They had a lot of good investments. So the family had wealth. Nonetheless, Fred had a very tough childhood. He was shy. He was introverted. He was sickly. He was a little overprotected by his mother, although his mother was just a wonderful, wonderful, I think almost saintly person. She was so caring, not only with him, but with everybody in the community. Her generosity. Wonderfully generous with her own time as a volunteer, but with money, with the family's money, helping anybody who had a problem in in Latrobe. But uh, she was overly protective of Fred, and I think that contributed to the, his struggle in, in, his, in his childhood. I see. But that struggle, of course, like a diamond under pressure, it bears fruit in the end. Absolutely. I think it was that struggle. First of all, it, it, it created Fred's lifelong interest in children and helping children, but it also created a tremendously strong 
sensitivity and strong sense of empathy on the part of Fred. So he had this Christian training in church, uh, going to church and with his parents who were very religious, devout Presbyterians. But he put it together uh, with with a very empathetic character that was sort of forged in this difficult childhood. Fabulous. Hey, tell the story. So early on, Fred Rogers had developed a, a love of the piano. And of course, he, he came from wealth. His grandmother said, I'd like to buy you a piano. Yeah. So Fred Rogers went downtown. Tell that story. Yeah. His Fred, at, at age three, I think, had a little, almost like a toy piano. And he had a great talent. He could hear a song and play it on the piano. He loved music. It was, it was a great solace to him, but it was clear he had talent. And when he was about nine or ten years old, he shared with his grandmother that he wanted to get a real piano. And his grandmother, who was a wealthy woman, said, okay. I mean, she was thinking to herself, he's nine years old. What's a real piano going to cost me? <laughs> right. Well, maybe $1,000 or something like that or a hundred, or four or $500. And so she gave him a ticket on the trolley to ride from Squirrel Hill, where she lived, downtown to Liberty Avenue to go to the Steinway store. As, which, a, as a kid by himself. By himself. You know, back then, kids, kids did that. Right, we did that. They, 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 there wasn't the worry about a kid being on their own. Right. Sorry, so, so he this. rode the trolley down to the store. <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, and he spent three hours there playing every piano there. And then he announced to the salespeople at the store, I've decided which one I'm going to tell my grand grandma to, to, to get me. And it was a, a Steinway ebonized concert grand that would be worth today maybe $60,000. Oh, my goodness. And – the the salesman I, I learned from uh, a woman who was running the store, who had talked to the salesman who had who had who some of the salesmen who had worked there for many years that she had met, and they told her the story about how they practically fell over laughing. And when they left, they said, "Wasn't that funny? This silly little kid in here." Well, he went home to his grandmother and he told her, and his grandmother said to herself, "I promised him I'd get him the piano he wanted." I know he's very talented. It's an outrageous amount of money. I'm not remembering the exact amount in the 1930-something dollars. But she did it. She bought it for him. Well, Fred Rogers had that for the rest of his life. He took it to New York. He took it to Toronto. He brought it back here. He took it to the studios at WQED. He wrote 200 songs on it. He wrote 12 operas on it. It was transformative. But she had the sense, first of all, to fulfill her promise. But secondly, to know, yes, this is an outrageous amount of money to spend, but maybe it'll be important. And it was more than important. It was transformative. Oh, that's incredible. So he rose to the occasion. Or, yeah. Right there it was. What they a both gift. did. They yeah, both yeah. rose to the occasion. Excellent story. Maxwell King, the good neighbor, the life and work of Fred Rogers. We'll take a quick break, come back, and Maxwell's going to stay with us as well. So we're going to talk about Fred Rogers until the top of the hour. Back in a few. This is what I give. I give an expression of care every day to each child to help him realize that he is unique. I end the program by saying, you've made this day a special day by just your being you. 
There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. Of course, that's Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, to all of us here in Western Pennsylvania. Maxwell King is with us. He's got a brand new biography, the only biography of Fred Rogers called The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers. Maxwell, um, that little clip coming in reminds me of a story that you tell so well in the book about Fred Rogers and um, right before Oprah Winfrey became Oprah Winfrey National, Fred was invited to the Chicago studios where Oprah Winfrey was doing a regional show. And uh, you tell the story so well that Fred was invited to the show and insisted that no children would be anywhere near the studio audience. Can you pick that up? (laughs) Yeah. And, of course, it wasn't that he didn't want children to be there. But what he didn't want was to have an audience that was half children and half grown-ups because he felt it was almost impossible to talk to children and talk to grown-ups at this if he if he if he gave a talk or answered questions in a way that was framed for grown-ups the children would be completely left out right or who is and, this guy now yeah and w- what he did was he he told David Newell who not only played Mr. McFeely on the neighborhood but was the uh marketing and public relations person for Family Communications Fred's production company told David Newell to remind them that it should be an audience of either grown-ups or children, uh, and he expected uh, grown-ups. Somehow it didn't get communicated, and you know the, whatever producers were putting it together for Oprah Winfrey didn't get the word. So it was an audience that was, that was mixed with children. And so Fred went to the children, and so he – he gravitated to the level of the children and and talked to them and 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 it was very hard for Oprah to keep it on track as a program for adults. I'm sure. And the parents were all there, but the children spontaneously sort of ran up to Fred Rogers. They knew Mr. Rogers from television, and Fred was just constitutionally incapable of turning his back on a child. <laughs> so it changed the tone of the conversation totally, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what about that? I mean, you know, now, of course, you know, we're steeped in the culture and we look at children so totally different than, you know, perhaps our parents or grandparents Very did, much. right? Right. But Fred was sort of the pioneer. And with that pioneer work, he had other child psychologists and most notably a, a, a child psychologist at the University of Pittsburgh who really helped Fred form that idea. Absolutely. One of the wonderful things that happened to Fred Rogers, he, he in the 1950s, he was making the Children's Corner, a precursor to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on WQED, and it was very successful. It won some national awards. NBC picked it up for a while. It was a very successful program, but it was very frustrating for Fred because it wasn't really educational. It didn't have a strong educational component. So he was beginning to wind down his engagement with that program, and he was going to the the um, seminary, to the Western Pennsylvania Presbyterian Seminary here in Pittsburgh, because he wanted to become a Presbyterian minister. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I've got allergies, so I keep coughing, but you'll forgive no me. I know. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, One of his teachers said to him, Fred, when you graduate from the seminary, what sort of ministry are you thinking of? Meaning, what church would you go to? And Fred Fred said, uh, I want to have a ministry for children on television. And the teacher said, 
Well, good luck. There's nothing like that. What that's year not, was that? What do you think? Oh, that was in the 1950s. The, so television really was not even television. No, and it, and it was just completely... The only person thinking that way was was Fred Rogers. But the teacher was very helpful and said to him, Fred, if you're interested in children, go over to the University of Pittsburgh where Dr. Margaret McFarland is teaching. And he did, and he studied there. And at that time, Pitt was the center in the United States of the most advanced thinking about early childhood education. So Fred was there with Dr. Benjamin Spock, Eric Erickson, the great philosopher and writer, uh, uh, Dr. Barry Bridge. They were all there. And Fred had the luck to be dropped into the middle of it. So that's what gave him the means, the capability to do really great educational television. Oh, that's and Margaret McFarland stuck with him till she died in the late 1980s, helping review scripts. And, and, and so he really created television that was a fulfillment of this advanced thinking about early childhood education. And what he did for these academics was he took the message to a mass audience via television. He really taught America about early childhood education. Wow, that's fabulous timing. So uh, the story also, one of the stories you tell in The Good Neighbor is that during the filming of one of the episodes, or I'm sure multiple episodes, Fred would run into some sort of conundrum and go, I'm not quite sure about this, and I'm thinking things through. Yeah. He would essentially shut down production exactly. and go to, go to pit. Exactly, which was very expensive because the crew was on the clock. They're just hanging his, out. His producers and, and, and the people who managed uh, the business affairs were distressed. But what happened to Fred had a script very carefully written, and he had others that he collaborated with on scripts. He vetted it with Dr. Margaret McFarland. But then when they were actually doing it, and you know this, John, from your own experience, you have in your mind how things are going to go in a program, and then when you're doing it, it's not quite the same. It's different. living and breathing. In the middle of the program, something would feel wrong to Fred in terms of how it would be for a three- or a four-year-old. And a lot of other people might have just missed it or ignored it or just plowed ahead yes but he wouldn't do it because he wanted to set the highest standards and he would shut things down leave the crew on the set and rush over to pit and talk to mcfarland or other academics to make sure that it was perfect and that was that was one of the characteristics of Fred Rogers. He was a perfectionist. Yeah, go into that because, like like you said, a lot of people have just gone. Uh, it's okay. It's leave well enough alone. But there was something about Fred that he had this level of excellence. He wanted to make sure that the message was communicated so well to the intended audience, which was a three, four, five year old. Because he felt that it was the most important thing in the world. That the you know what Fred learned in his time at Pitt was. Those years from birth to age three are the most critical years in terms of um, the the development of the brain, the development of all kinds of intellectual capabilities, language development. And he knew it had to be at a very high standard to be effective. And <clears throat> that was part of his character. Uh, you know, the people who worked with him loved him. And believed in him and felt that he gave them a lot of latitude to express themselves. But they knew he was a perfectionist. He had a, he had a, a, a vision of excellence. And he was going to hold to that vision of excellence. Wonderful. So collaboration is good, but there's always that lead person who has the vision. Yeah. One, one of the producers, Margie Whitmer, once said, 
It's not our neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) It's Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It's Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Very good. We'll take a quick break. Maxwell King is with us. We're talking about the good neighbor, the life and work of Fred Rogers. Our conversation continues in just a few. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair, but it's you I like. Hey, thanks for being with us. Maxwell King is with us. A brand new, first time ever biography of Mr. Rogers called The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers. So Maxwell, uh, in reading the book, which is a fabulous book, it is chocked with one great story after another. Thank you, John. My pleasure, really. I love the book. Thank you. Tom Hanks was uh, in town here recently shooting a movie, uh, and he's playing Fred Rogers. And anybody who saw the, the image of Tom Hanks, he looked like Fred Rogers. They did a great job. And he's such a fabulous actor. He sure is. I'm sure he does a, a wonderful job. He's played so many different roles so well. Yes. And he, I think what, what I like about Tom Hanks' acting is he doesn't overplay it. And he'll do really well with Fred Rogers, and I'm sure he won't. Overplay. Yeah, the subtlety within yeah. Fred, right? Yeah. So the story that uh, Tom Hanks is part of, this movie, is based upon a story and a relationship with uh, a writer from Esquire magazine. Right, right. Uh, back in, I'm pretty sure it's 1996, a writer named Tom Junod, J-U-N-O-D, did a wonderful profile of Fred Rogers in Esquire magazine. And Tom Junot is sort of known as a bad boy journalist who was really good at tearing things down. But they assigned him to do Mr. Rogers, thinking it would be, there'd be some irony there of oh, sure. the bad boy du- journalist doing this guy. Well, they became great friends. For the rest of Fred's life, they were very, very good friends. And the movie is about the friendship between Tom Junot and, and, and Fred Rogers. And uh, so Tom Janot really, has, you know, spent a lot of time working on helping the the uh, producers of the film uh, make this movie. And but here's here's the story that that's so you know life is always full of these ironies and 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 life sort of circles back on itself. Yes. And um, back uh, when when I was at the Rogers Center and was finishing up my two years of helping them, being the director of the center and getting it underway. And Joanne Rogers uh, asked me to write the biography of uh, Fred Rogers. I called my agent in New York, who's a guy named David Black. And I had an agent because when I was the editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, I did uh, a book publishing program. We did a lot of long series in the paper. So we published about three dozen books, and, and David Black was in Involved in that, so I called David Black up and I said, "David, you know I'm out in Pittsburgh and I've been doing this at the Rogers Center, and now I've got access, exclusive access for the purposes of a biography to all this material at St. Vincent College to do a biography of Fred, and I want you to represent it." Blah 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 blah, and then I stopped for a minute and silence. Not a word. So I went on. I said, I think this is a good book because of this and that. Fred Rogers, this and that. And I stopped. Nothing. And I said, David, what is wrong with you? This is a good idea. You're a good agent. Why don't you see it? And he said, I'm just flabbergasted. I'm speechless. Because 10 years ago, I flew to Pittsburgh with one of my best writers, Tom Janot, and we spent 
two hours with Fred Rogers pleading with him to let us, Tom Janot, do a biography of Fred Rogers. And he said no. He didn't want one done by anybody. He didn't want it. You know, the same thing Joanne Rogers later told me. He didn't want one to be done. So we never got it done. And now you call me up. And you serve it up on a platter to me. And, and, and he said, of course, I want to do it. Let's, yes. let's do it. And he was very helpful to me. Fabulous. But the irony is that then it, it comes back around. I mean, actually, Fred Rogers should have said yes, because Tom Janot is a much better writer than I am. I don't know. Oh, he's a beautiful writer. He really is. Uh, so, But it, the irony is it comes back around now, and Tom is involved in making this movie about the friendship. Uh, so it's just life is sweet that it way, the way is. it just keeps coming around. Especially around these personalities. <laughs> yeah. Very excellent. Hey, so uh, as we uncovered the, the story of Fred Rogers in the book, and you know, you get deeper into the book, uh, I often thought about Fred Rogers' kids because um, they're similar in age to me. And, uh, you know, just being in Pittsburgh, you know, two degrees of separation, you would hear about Mr. Rogers and Mr. Rogers' sons. Yeah. So talk about that because, you know, as a Presbyterian pastor, of course, you know, you're talking to a Christian audience here, uh, everyone knows what a PK is. A PK is a pastor's kid. Yeah. And it comes with a certain amount of baggage, both good and bad. Sure. And I'm sure that Fred Rogers' sons also had to carry that baggage. Well, sure they did. And he, he was a pastor to the whole world yeah. on television, which made it even tougher for them, I think. I interviewed both Jim and John, both sons, and they're wonderful. They, they were so much fun to talk to because they were completely open and honest about everything, including their own struggles in adolescence, acting out and having having various, um, you know, pro- I don't know if I'd call them problems. It's just growing up. But, yeah. But the difficulties that poor Fred struggled with because <coughs> Fred told Joanne later he loved being the father of very little children because he was confident. But when he was the father of teenagers, he felt lost. And Welcome. We've all had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> but they were so great to talk to. And they're both interviewed in the documentary movie, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, uh, that came out in June. And you can see what, what and how much they appreciated their loving father. They Fabulous. both did. It's a burden, but I'm sure it's a delight as well to be yeah. Fred Rogers' son. Yeah. So uh, at the end of Fred Rogers' life, I mean, of course, there's so much that's packed into The Good Neighbor. Uh, passed away uh, of stomach cancer. Yeah. What was that like for him? How did he deme- uh, meet his demise? Well, it, uh, it was kind of spectacular how he did. He spent he, – he didn't know he was going to die from stomach cancer – until they did an operation in January of the year he died, 2003, if I'm remembering. Yeah, that's correct. And they did an exploratory operation, and they just sewed him back up and said, there's nothing we can do. So he had about three months left to live, and he spent that time doing a lot of praying, doing a lot of thinking about life, doing a lot of reading. Uh, when When I, Joanne took me to show me the bedroom where he spent the last three months of his life and on the bedside table, which was kind of a revolving bookcase, kind of a table, there were all these books about, you know, there was the Presbyterian Bible, but there were books about uh, Confucius, about Buddhism, about Catholic mysticism. So he was reading about life to the end, but he was also planning and – a good friend of his was Jim Okanak, who runs the McFeely Rogers Foundation out in Latrobe. 
and he was giving things to Jim Jim Okanak and saying, Jim, I want you to send this to this person, that to that. In other words, he was leaving gifts as for uh, as he three exits. weeks after he died, two to three weeks after he died. People, all these people in his life started getting these presents. How wonderful! Usually without a note, because the present was the note. <laughs> Here's this guy who was the the master of giving and caring and loving, doing it posthumously. Wow. Really something. Fabulous. Well, Maxwell, thanks an awful lot. I mean, just one terrific story after another, which comprises The Good Neighbor, the life and work of Fred Rogers. We're happy that you were able to spend time with us here and just give us a small touch of many more stories inside. Thank you, John. What a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. It really was. Listen, do yourself a favor. Really. The Good Neighbor, the life and work of Fred Rogers, excellent gift. We'll be back in a few minutes with just a touch left. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.